This time as we come to uh, look at the sixth commandment, I'm going to start with Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, there on, uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, it talks about God's will for us in the sixth commandment. And it's interesting because as we've looked at the commandments, a lot of times in the Heidelberg Catechism, there's just one question answer gets to the root of the commandment and moves on. But in this case, there are actually three and what's funny is because it seems like a commandment that's so cut and dried and maybe so easy to, to deal with and accomplish. Thou shalt not kill. And yet, uh, Jesus goes on at length about what that means and the catechism does as well to, to get at the root, to get at the, the attitude, the, the spirit of the law. And so we're going to look at these three questions and answers, and I'm going to ask that you would read those responsively with me before we look at the Scripture passages. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be a party to this in others. Rather, I am put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. And of course, that reflects our Old Testament lesson this morning, which is only four words uh, from Exodus 20, verse 13. Only four words in the uh, English. It's actually only two words in the Hebrew. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Now, Jesus takes some time to go a little further than this, and so we're going to focus our attention this morning on Matthew chapter 5. There in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a little bit about what is the disciples' relationship to the law. If you recall, way back to the beginning of the summer, back before we were actually meeting in person, uh, I began this series by looking at Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where Jesus talks to his disciples about what is our relationship to the, that, that law that we find in the Old Testament, the Torah, what is our relationship now in Christ to that law? And he said he didn't come to throw out the law. He actually came to establish it more perfectly, to get us to understand the spirit and the attitude behind the law. And so then he goes on and gives six examples of commandments and how we should understand them, not just for the letter, but the spirit of the law. And the very first one he deals with is the sixth commandment. <clears throat> so let's look at that. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. There we read, You have heard that it was said of the people long ago, 
you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, and your, and your adversary may hand, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Would you join me in a time of prayer? Holy Spirit, as you inspire these words to be remembered and echoed down from Mount Sinai, as Jesus reminded us of what it means to get to the spirit or attitude behind the commandment. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now take these words that you have inspired and inspire them to us, that we might understand them for our day and age, that we might understand them for our individual lives, how you want us to act accordingly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1867, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel awoke one morning to read his own obituary in a local paper. The obituary read, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. Now, actually, it was Alfred's older brother who had died. A newspaper reporter had made a mistake, but... The account had a profound effect on Alfred. He decided he wanted to be known for something other than developing a means to kill people efficiently and amassing a fortune in the process. So Nobel initiated the Nobel Prize, an award for scientists and writers who foster peace. Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one, Nobel said. Alfred Nobel didn't want to be known. He didn't want his life to be known for killing. And that's probably true for all of us. Although very few of us would ever really even be in such a position. And there's the rub. If most of us would never be in that position, what does the Sixth Commandment mean for us today? Is it a non-issue? Well, consider the way we are exposed to killing. One statistic says by age 16, a child has seen well over 30,000 murders on television and in the movies and no telling how many as a participant in video games. Have they, have we become callous to killing? 
Or as Lewis Smedes wrote in his book, Mere Morality, we are members of a race that habitually slaughters its own children. We honor those who kill as long as they honor our enemies. They kill our enemies. We allow children far away to die from hunger while our own children gorge themselves. We prepare for nuclear holocaust as if it were our human destiny to perform one ultimate ritual of atomic genocide. And yet we still nod yes at the sound of the trumpet blaring the message from ancient Sinai, thou shalt not kill. We affirm the word and yet know it's an alien message in our world. So what does it mean in the 21st century? You shall not kill or literally murder. How can we, many of whom have never handled a weapon or intend to kill, take this command to heart? Well, we need to look at the command as Jesus did on two levels, the external and the internal, the literal and the spiritual. First, the external action that's required is to be pro-life, to be pro-life. On the external or literal level, the sixth commandment is about murder, that is, intentional killing. And we see that on that front, the Bible is very pro-life, giving us a lot of reasons for not killing, but I want to focus on two of them. One is the sacredness of persons. Lewis Smedes says the Bible is also pro-person. He writes, the concrete person, beautiful or ugly, productive or idle, smart or stupid, is the one whom God made, whom God loves, whose life is in God's hands, and for whom his son died on the cross. This is the person who walks humbly on the earth as the image and likeness of the creator who made him, end quote. It's not so much about the value of a person. The value of a person is humanity's qualitative and quantitative evaluation. But think about it. That value, from humanity's perspective, could be called into question regarding a criminal or an elderly person with no quality of life or a severely disabled person or an unborn fetus. It's not so much about value, or at least what our society, our culture values. Rather, it is about the sacredness of a person. And that is ultimately based on God's evaluation. So why is a person sacred? A person is sacred, first of all, because he or she is the image of God. We're made in the image of God. We're familiar with that concept, and, and we know that we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we see God creating us in his image. What we may forget is that a few chapters later, in Genesis 9, verse 6, God actually instituted capital punishment for murder for that very reason. He says, you shall not murder, and someone who murders will be put to death, because in the image of God has God made man. In the image of God has God made man. We are God's likeness on earth. Thus says William Barclay, the taking of a man's life is a destruction of the most precious and holy thing in the world. So we are in the image of God. We are also loved by God. There's lots of passages that, that talk about being loved by God. 
Think of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 speaks of humanity's value and sacredness in God's eyes. He made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. He crowned us with with glory and honor. He put the works of, of his hands underneath us. That's the value, that's the sacredness of humanity in God's eyes. But there's a greater illustration of humanity's sacredness and value to God, and the greater illustration is the cross of Jesus. God the Father was willing to trade his own son's life for us. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he values us. So there's a sacredness of persons that demands that we protect people's lives and especially protect those who can't protect themselves, in particular the unborn. But there's another reason that uh, we must be pro-life, God says, and that is the authority of God. God has authority over life in two ways. First, he's Life is the creation of God. Life is the creation of God. He's the author of creation. As an author has authority over his book or an artist over her art, so God has ultimate authority over life, all of life. Life is his gift. As we heard from David earlier in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We are the loved creation of God at conception. And so God has authority and he says, thou shalt not kill. Which leads secondly to the fact that we are all the creation of God gives God the right to command us. And the command of God is exercised through his Torah. And particularly through the sixth commandment, you shall not kill or you shall not murder. The one who has all authority over life also has the authority to determine how life must work and put limits on whether or not a life can be taken. So the Bible is pro-life, the sacredness of persons based on the authority of God. But Jesus comes onto the scene in the first century and sees... uh, generations of people that have looked at that sixth commandment and wrongly construed it. And so as he does with a lot of the other commandments, Jesus wants to set things right. He wants to get people beyond looking at the letter of the law to looking at the spirit of the law. And so he calls us not only to be pro-life, but to be pro-love. Not only to be worried about our external action, but our internal attitude. You see, in rabbinic teaching by the first century, keeping this command was considered to be easy. This was was kind of a freebie, okay? You don't really have to spend a whole lot of time on this. Who kills anyway? And in fact, if you could prove your innocence before the court of the law, you were seen as innocent before God. 
One commentator writes, to, to put it somewhat crassly, one standing before God was measured in terms of one standing before the law, which was determined by a court proceeding. Therefore, if one was guiltless before a human court of having broken the law, one could legitimately assume he would be guiltless before God at the last judgment, since the human court merely carried out God's law. It's a little scary when you think about how who can get off and who can hire the best lawyers and everything to, to think that God would honor that. But that was the way they were thinking. And so, for the most part, they were saying, this is the easy one. This is the freebie. You get a free pass on this one. Worry about the other nine, because you probably aren't going to even come in contact with this one. And that's probably the common thinking today for most people. Oh, I never intentionally killed anyone, so I'm good regarding this commandment. But Jesus moves the focus from the deed to the disposition of the heart what the catechism calls the root of murder. Several years ago, Time Magazine had an issue cover story entitled Death by Gun, and it analyzed one week in America. Out of the 464 deaths by gun that week, 216 were suicide, and 64 were committed by friends or relatives, close friends or relatives. So, over 60% of the deaths seem to have been the result of unresolved anger or jealousy or even with the suicides, an attempt at revenge or maybe dealing with being abused or belittled. All those things, those attitudes, those uh, underneath the surface things that the catechism speaks of as the root of murder. The root of murder, envy, hatred, anger vindictiveness. That's what Jesus says here. Jesus says that anger, calling someone raka, which is blockhead in Hebrew, or you fool, are in danger of breaking the sixth commandment because Jesus recognizes sin starts in the heart. Hatred and anger are the spiritual cause behind murder. Now, it never may get to the point of murder, but it is the root. And even if not carried out, John says in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. True, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but righteous anger is focused on the sin. Unrighteous anger is generally focused on the person. The basis for such an interpretation is Jesus' understanding of the Torah, the law, as being about loving God and loving neighbor. Loving God and loving neighbor. Love is not just the absence of murder, says Jesus. It's also the absence of hatred. It's the absence of anger. Or more positively, it's the presence of love. As Lewis Smedes writes, love will not let us listen to the command against killing except as a call for helping our neighbor live. Do you ever think about that? This commandment is... First and foremost, not saying you shall not kill. It's saying you shall help your neighbor live. Think about if we, we had thought about, think about this commandment this way. We go into the week saying, I'm commanded by God to help my neighbor live and live well. How are we going to do that? Frederick Buechner writes, In the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion, but an act of the will. 
When Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, he's not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with a cozy emotional feeling. You can as easily produce a cozy emotional feeling on demand as you can or yawn or sneeze. On the contrary, he's telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end, even if it means sometimes leaving them alone. Thus, in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. In fact, liking them may stand in the way of loving them by making us overprotective sentimentalists instead of reasonably honest friends. He goes on, this does not mean that liking may not be part of loving, only that it doesn't have to be. Sometimes liking follows on the heels of loving. It's hard to work for people's well-being for very long without coming in the end to rather like them too. Well, if the sixth commandment calls us to live in love, then it also entails the command to reconcile when love is absent. And to do so with a sense of urgency. And that's what Jesus gives a couple of examples of. In verses 23 and 24, he gives the example of the importance of reconciling. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, love and reconciliation are so important that you should stop worship in order to reconcile with your brother. In fact, you'd, any of you would be excused if you left in the middle of my sermon because you needed to reconcile with somebody. 1 John 4.20 says, Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You cannot truly love God without reconciling with loving your brother or sister, friend or neighbor, boss or employee. It's important, but it also needs to be done with immediacy. Jesus goes on, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, and I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Often lawsuits settle before it goes to court, because everyone knows how much worse it could get once you get lawyers and juries involved in it. Well, Jesus says, as with a lawsuit, so with a broken relationship. Reconcile now before the hatred and anger grows out of proportion. But there might even be a deeper meaning here if Jesus has a certain being in mind for judge. Jesus may be saying, reconcile in love now before you stand before God the judge because then it's going to be too late. So we call ourselves pro-life regarding abortion, and well, we should. But the sixth commandment also calls us to be pro-love in all our relationships. Jesus calls us to examine not just our actions, but our hearts. And you know what? We're going to all fall short. I can tell you that right now. We'll all fall short. But in Christ, we find forgiveness and the possibility of reconciliation, not only with our brother and sister, but also with God. So let's not only be part of the pro-life movement, 
but of God's pro-love movement as well. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would work it in our hearts and lives, what we need to hear, and more importantly, how we need to live. Help us to be pro-life and pro-love for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you join me as we sing together, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. We'll sing the three stanzas and the words will be on your screen. Would you stand as we sing? Um.